Today on Digital Village, we speak with UCLA professor and sex therapist Gail Wyatt on sex in the age of COVID. Then we talk to Michael Lee, reporter at The Intercept, who brings us up to date on the saga of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange and his fight against extradition to the U.S. So much about the coronavirus remains a mystery to medical experts. And that includes facts about sex and COVID-19. While the virus can be spread through saliva, mucus, and breathing, little else is known about its transmission. What types of sexual behaviors make people most susceptible to the coronavirus? Is there such a thing as safe sex during the pandemic? And how do couples overcome communication barriers around sex? With us today to discuss the issue is Gail Wyatt, clinical psychologist, sex therapist, and UCLA professor. She spoke with Digital Village reporter Leilani Albano. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Is there such thing as having safe sex during the pandemic, or is all of that out the door? Depending on how you define sex, there is. I disagree with some other people who say there is no safe sex. Of course there's safe sex. What are some of the best practices during this time? I don't think that you can talk about COVID and not also look at the fact that you can recommend something to people that they may get a sexually transmitted infection or HIV, or have an unintended pregnancy. So we can't recommend one thing that's going to create another problem somewhere else. You may not get infected with COVID, but you may end up with an unwanted outcome. So as a sex therapist, I'm against any unwanted outcome. People need to be informed. They need to practice. Sex isn't something that we just know. You have to learn, and you have to be willing to be open-minded. So with all that said... I think it's extremely important that people assume that everybody is infected. If you start from that standpoint, then you won't elude yourself into thinking that because you know someone, because you love them, because they dress well, because they say that they're not doing anything or going anywhere, that they're telling the truth. I'm not trying to make people paranoid, but I don't believe what people say. I believe what they do. So the best thing to do is to look at their behavior. If you have someone in your life, you both need to get tested and show each other the results, but that's only a moment in time, and that doesn't mean you're never going to be infected if you are negative. If you are positive, you need to quarantine yourself for at least 10 days and get another test before even considering any kind of activity that may increase your individual risk or their risk for that matter. So I think that we are dealing with a pandemic. This is not business as usual. This doesn't mean you can do everything you used to do. It means that we all have to make some sacrifices in order to make sure we're not putting ourselves at risk or anybody else. So at this time, what place does sex and sexual pleasure have in the national conversation? Shouldn't that be the last thing we think about during a deadly viral outbreak? Not if you believe that you deserve sexual pleasure, that you have the capacity to pleasure yourself and that you don't have to do without sexual pleasure just because we're in a pandemic. If your assumptions are that only someone else can give you that pleasure, I think that's going to be a problem, particularly given the fact that when we spend more time around people, even with a mask, we increase our risk for transmission. 
So I think that we don't have to give up our sex lives. We are born with a sex life. We have to do something with it. That's one of the misassumptions that most people have. It just doesn't come with puberty. You're born with it. People can do something about it. They don't have to rely on someone else. And you're talking about masturbation. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about masturbation because it is the least risky. I could say porn, watching porn. But I think that porn has a great many problems. It can be addictive and it can change a person's response cycle to sexual stimulation, making it very difficult for humans to replicate what a, a device with a battery or two can do. When we're looking at basic rules of sexual behavior, there's talk of setting sexual limits as well as fostering better communication with your partners. Can you talk about that? Yes. Well, as a sex therapist, I advocate, regardless of a pandemic, that people need to learn how to talk about sex with their partners. They need to learn the anatomy and all the terms so that when two people decide that they'd like to have some sort of sexual activity, they can talk to each other and be very specific about exactly what it is that they want to do. Uh, some of the words that may sound erotic or sexy or cute are really not what's appropriate. We need to be very clear about what we want to do with someone else, and they need to be very clear with us so that before any clothes are taken off or anyone's in a compromising position, both partners know exactly what it is they want to do. And that doesn't change with COVID. They have to understand that all of those rules about consent and knowledge have to be adhered to, but they also have to figure out how are they going to protect themselves from a face-to-face -face encounter where aerosol can be exchanged with heavy breathing, with open-mouth kissing, with closed-mouth kissing. How can they avoid situations where their chances of getting COVID are greater and still experience some kind of sexual pleasure? Talking about sexual limits, this is the thing for a lot of women. Many have not learned how to assert themselves sexually ever. So how much harder is it to try to set limits during COVID when there seems to be so much at stake? It's very hard. It's very frustrating to say these things, knowing that most people don't have an opportunity to learn them. I have got several research projects where we actually teach men and women on how to communicate about sex. My thought is particular to women, though, because we've been acculturated a certain way or there right. are other reasons, we don't always assert ourselves. But particularly to the pandemic, when wearing a face mask or being in a certain position is so important, I could only imagine the kind of barriers that women are going to face Absolutely. when they have to really be assertive at this time. I would recommend that they come, come up with a script of words that they feel comfortable saying and they practice them in the mirror and then they practice them with someone that they know and trust so they can get comfortable having this conversation. And then they try it, saying before they begin, I've never talked like this before. These are words I'm not really using because I want to, but I don't want COVID. So here's my attempt to be very clear about what it is I'd like to do with you, like for you to be as honest and clear with me as you can, and we may bumble through this, but we'll get better. What are some of the ways that COVID is spread during sexual activity? Face-to-face -face contact is the most risky. That's where there's heavy breathing, kissing, open-mouth kissing, 
talking, any of those kinds of behaviors increases a person's risk, and particularly without a mask. Submissive positions where people are not facing each other can be less risky for COVID and yet more risky for HIV. If you're going to try a submissive position where one person has their back to another person, you have to make sure that you're using methods like condoms or you're using other antiretroviral medications to minimize the spread of HIV, but it may increase your chances of avoiding COVID. So to my understanding, the ways that COVID is spread, the transmitters can be respiratory, saliva, and mucus. So kissing is out because that's face-to-face, but can you kiss somebody's skin? Can your skin absorb COVID? I don't know. I, I just don't know that. Given that I don't know and other people may not know or there may be mixed opinions, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't take a chance on it. You can touch someone's skin. don't necessarily have to kiss that person's skin with your mouth. Your mouth is a main vector. And, of course, if you're wearing a mask and you're covering your nose, you're also blocking any kind of mucus may have so COVID. If, if you have sex with a mask on, uh, it would increase your chances of preventing the spread. Any thoughts about people saying, you know what, if you're going to have sex, keep it quick. Does that help mm-hmm. to just have shorter spans of sex? Yes. The less time you spend with another person in their, in their presence, if you're not living with them, the better. What about the number of partners? Is it okay to have more than one partner during COVID? The fewer the partners you have, the better you are. Track down all of those people to find out are they telling you the truth when they say, I've never been out of the house. It may be something you can't do without exposing yourself to COVID. How do you make group sex safe? I mean, do you need to do kind of like the bubble situation? Yeah, you would need to quarantine for at least 10 days. And if all those people stay in that bubble, then you're more likely to see that if they don't come up with any symptoms during that time, coughing, nose running, fevers, all of those kinds of symptoms that we know may indicate that the person has COVID, then their likelihood of transmitting something to you may be less. So when we're saying no one can leave the bubble, we're not just saying that they can't just pick up another partner and not tell you. We're also saying that they they can't go to work, they can't visit their grandmother, they can't physically leave the bubble. That's the only way you'll really know. You stay wherever you are, in a house, in an apartment, for the entire time for 10 days. That's what we call reducing the risk. Also, when you're disclosing information about yourself to a potential partner or a partner, wouldn't it be wise to overshare about your life? Let's just say it's not just about your sexual history you want to tell them about. Do you need to tell them the number of people you're living with, whether you're an essential worker or if you live Mm -hmm. in a place with high exposure? You can, yes. Whether they're telling you the truth is something else. But yes, I would think that was fair. In a normal world, I would say to you, and I've said to people in there, someone will tell you, count up the number of partners you've had. That's not their business. In COVID, it is. Because if you've been to an orgy in the Hollywood Hills last night, that person could be the most fabulous person in the world, good-looking, this and that and the other. They are at high risk for transmission. Is it worth it? If it's not worth it for you or you giving COVID to other people, then that's not somebody that you want to consider having sex with.
You won't die, I assure you, if you pass that person and that situation up. What we will do if we all make those sacrifices is to get this virus away from our country, away from our bubbles, away from our families, schools, workplaces, and play places, and get back to a a life where we can stand in line, get this vaccine, and then see what the new normal will be. Otherwise, we are fooling ourselves by being selfish, by acting as if you're going to die if you don't have sex just the way you want to. That's not realistic, and it's going to keep us where we are now. How long before and after sex should people be tested for COVID? This is not something you can just get a test and then go out and have sex. Allow yourself at least a two-week window. If you're not sure, quarantine yourself for at least 10 days. This is nothing quick about choosing partners. You have to take your time, make the right choices. What if I get the vaccine? Can I kiss and have multiple partners right away? No. We don't have enough people who have the vaccine. We don't have enough people who have the second shot of the vaccine to be able to consider that it's going to make a difference in terms of the people who come down with those symptoms that are plaguing us now. We need at least 70% of the population to have those vaccines, both vaccines. And what if I don't want to risk it all for in-person sex? Can you let me know about some of my options? Pleasuring yourself is number one. Taking the time to create an environment around you with music, with lighting, with candles that are relaxing for you. Some people like to read or look at something that very romantic, very tender, very loving, and create a, a permission for you to find those areas of your body that feel good and that are stimulating and to pleasure yourself into a situation where you feel better. Second would be talking to someone over the phone and describing experiences that you'd like to have to do with them and they'd like you'd like for them to do with you that's phone sex um, looking at film there are lots of ways that are or that create memory risk with a partner having oral sex mutual oral sex mutual hand stimulation masturbation all of those are minimal risk and if there are any silver linings during this time regarding sex and covid what would they be that we all learn to make sacrifices and look at long-term goals as something that we should strive for. These are tough times, and I think America has been very privileged in not having to make sacrifices that everybody has to make. Here's our first real opportunity to either change our public health in the United States or die because we're too selfish to make the sacrifices that are needed. I hope we'll all change our behavior. That was clinical psychologist, sex therapist, and UCLA professor, Gail Wyatt. She spoke with Digital Village's Leilani Elbano. Oh, I'd be six feet apart than six feet up there. Rather not have my heart and lungs torn asunder. I'd rather wear a mask than seen as just another. Rather be six feet apart than six feet under. Yes, I'd rather be six feet apart than six feet under. 
although Donald Trump failed to extradite WikiLeaks co-founder Julian Assange to the United States, newly elected President Joe Biden will likely pursue charges against him, says journalist Glenn Greenwald. In 2019, Assange was indicted on 17 spying charges and one computer crime charge for publishing secret military documents. The Obama administration ruled in 2013 that it could not charge Assange with crimes related to publishing classified documents. Then in 2018, the Trump administration switched to a hacking charge against Assange instead. Greenwald believes Assange's case is being propped up as a deterrent against government whistleblowing. Assange was arrested in 2019 in London after being expelled from the Ecuadorian embassy where he had taken refuge since 2012. A U.K. judge has since denied Assange's extradition to the U.S., citing concerns over his mental health. Here with us to talk about the issue is The Intercept's Mika Lee. He spoke with Digital Village reporter Leilani Elbano. Welcome to the show. Thank you. You've described the computer charges against Assange as being incredibly flimsy. Can you tell us about that? So Julian Assange was charged with conspiring with his source, Chelsea Manning, to crack a password. And the password cracking itself never actually happened. And in fact, recent new testimony in Assange's extradition trial shows that it couldn't have happened because Chelsea Manning didn't actually provide him enough information to actually crack this password. So the entire computer crimes part of the case against Julian Assange is all based on a brief conversation that Assange had with Chelsea Manning, according to the indictment, where they briefly discussed cracking a password. And that's it. And the password didn't have anything to do with whistleblowing because Chelsea Manning already had access, like legitimate access to all of the documents she was accused of leaking. It wouldn't have provided more access or anything like that. Regardless of whether he actually did anything wrong or not, do the accusations against him merit the kind of punishment he could be facing? No, I don't think so. I think that Julian Assange has angered a lot of people in the U.S. government. And this whole case against him is about the Chelsea Manning leaks from 2010. So it's about WikiLeaks publishing a bunch of leaked documents about the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, a bunch of State Department cables, and a video of U.S. soldiers committing war crimes. In this specific case, the type of work that Julian Assange and WikiLeaks were doing was really very similar to the work that any other American newspaper is doing. Tons of newspapers all across the country and across the world published about these exact same leaks. They wrote articles based on these documents. First, we see the Obama administration trying to charge him with publishing classified documents. And then you see the Trump administration trying to indict him on these computer charges. Why do you think the Trump administration had changed course on Assange? The reason why the Obama administration basically decided to not proceed with the case against him was because they figured out that they didn't really have a case because of the First Amendment. Because the First Amendment protects people from publishing information. Even if that information was obtained illegally, it's still protected by the First Amendment. And there's Supreme Court cases like about the Pentagon Papers, about Daniel Ellsberg's 
big leak of documents related to the Vietnam War, it, the courts upheld that it's completely legal for journalists to publish illegally obtained information. I think that the big difference in strategy is that they wanted to have a new tool to basically charge journalists with conspiring with their sources. Do you see this type of cybercrime being weaponized against journalists in the future? Oh, definitely. So it's very common for journalists and sources to have uh, some sort of relationship. You know, they chat with each other over Signal or over other encrypted messaging systems. They talk about various things. And I think that there's been a bunch of leaked cases already where evidence that the uh, source is using encryption is kind of used against the source. And so I think that if they can get away with charging Julian Assange with like conspiracy to commit computer crimes with his source, then they will try to use this tactic against everyone. What is the basis for the hacking charges against Assange? So what they're accusing him of doing is helping Chelsea Manning crack a password. So at the time, Manning was a army soldier working in a base in Iraq, and she had access to a bunch of computers that she used, and they were all Windows computers, but she didn't have an administrator account on these computers, which means she couldn't install programs. But apparently, a lot of the other soldiers were always interested in hacking these computers so that they could um, you know, install whatever software they wanted. And so she had allegedly gotten a password hash for a user on a computer, an FTP user, and a password hash is kind of like an encrypted version of a password that in some cases it's possible to recover the original password. And so what the uh, charge is is that she allegedly told Assange this password hash and asked if he could help crack it. And he said, sure, I'll try to help crack it. And then that's kind of it. He, He never actually ended up cracking it, and later expert testimony showed that he couldn't have cracked it because of the password hash that she gave them was incomplete. It didn't include everything that was needed to crack the password, so it couldn't have even happened. So did Assange essentially pass along any sensitive information at all through this whole situation? You mean, like, did he do anything to help her acquire documents or anything like that? Right. So he's being accused of conspiring. So so the charge against him is a conspiracy charge. But yeah, it didn't happen. So like the, the actual hacking didn't happen. So by virtue of the fact that it is related to some kind of computer issue or violation, you could possibly see more punishment. Oh yeah, definitely. In this specific case, I think that it's more likely that the CFAA part will go through than the First Amendment parts, than the the Espionage Act parts. Because the Espionage Act right now is pretty much primarily used not against spies, the name suggests, but against whistleblowers. But the computer crime is people think that this is just a hacker doing illegal stuff. Many in the mainstream would like nothing more than to put Assange behind bars. And you even make a note in your blog that you aren't a big fan, but you're defending him anyway. Why is that important? So there's a lot of very legitimate animosity about Assange. He has done a lot of unethical things, especially since the 2016 election. But this case isn't about any of that. 
This case is about something that happened in 2010, and I think that they're using Assange's unpopularity as a way to kind of like silently get this very bad and very dangerous legal precedent that they want to get so that they can go after journalists, really. What will this mean for journalism if the computer charges against Assange are upheld? So I think that it will be really bad for journalists going forward in the United States. I think that if the hacking charges are upheld, the conspiring with the source is upheld, then it means that there will be a lot more legal risk to do investigative journalism. So if a reporter has a source and the source does something illegal and gives the reporter some information that they obtained illegally, then that journalist is at risk of felony conspiracy. Why is it so important for that protection? If journalists aren't protected from being charged with felonies for working with their sources, then that's just going to cripple investigative journalism, and it's going to make the First Amendment way less functional than it otherwise would be. I think that so many of the stories, the major stories, the Pulitzer Prize-winning stories that have come out over the last several years are all based on leaks, whistleblowers. It's based on somebody who broke the law to expose wrongdoing. And it's bad enough that those whistleblowers are being hunted by the Department of Justice. The same thing happens with journalists as well. Then that'll be really bad. And I think it'll be really chilling to the the field of journalism. Well, thanks so much for joining the show. Absolutely. Thank you. That was The Intercept reporter, Misha Lee. He spoke to Digital Village's Leilani Elbano. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. Remember, when we're not on the air, you can hear us 24-7 on kpfk.org. A special thanks to Ricky Herrera and Master Control. For Rick Allen, I'm Leilani Albano, and we'll see you online.